You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. Join us now for Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my good friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. And uh, we've been uh, going through some of Archbishop Sheen's talks from the war years. Uh, It was 1942 when Fulton Sheen was addressing America, trying to help make sense of the war. And uh, we've been sharing these messages because I think they're very relevant today. Um, even though these were given um, 80 years ago, uh, it's still very much uh, wisdom that can be used today. And so um, I'm going to give a reflection entitled, The Divine Cost of Stopping This War. And I think it's a very powerful title, The Divine Cost of Stopping This War. And uh, we'd love to see the wars stop. Of course, uh, Russia and the Ukraine come to mind. Uh, We think of many other places of the world where there's unrest. But um, again, there is a divine cost to stopping the war. So uh, Fulton Sheen will help us with that. And then we will continue this retreat series that we've been given, um, that Fulton Sheen gave towards the end of his life. And he gives a beautiful talk about wasting your life. And I think it is so important that we have to waste our life on good things, of course, that being the Lord. And so uh, looking forward to sharing that reflection with you later in the program. So for now, I'd ask you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he gives a reflection entitled, The Divine Cost of Stopping This War. Please enjoy. Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen of the Catholic University of America will now deliver the 12th in his series of 17 addresses on the general subject, Peace. His discourse today is entitled, The Divine Cost of Stopping the War. I present Monsignor Sheen. Friends, in this broadcast, we enter into the very heart of the question, why does God not stop this war? And the answer is that the divine cost of stopping this war would be the destruction of human freedom. This needs some explanation. Let us begin with this fact. This is not the only kind of a world God could have made. He could have made a world without freedom. He could have so fashioned us 
that we would have been good by the same necessity the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. But God willed not to make a mechanical universe peopled by automata. Rather did he choose to communicate to us something of himself, namely his freedom. Not in the same degree of perfection, of course, but enough of it to say no, which would give a charm to a yes when we freely chose to say it. In other words, God chose to make a moral universe where characters would emerge by the right use of freedom, a universe like a nation where there would be patriots because men might be traitors. A universe like a battlefield, where there would be heroes because men might be cowards. A universe like a church, where there would be saints because men also might be devils. There is no epic for the certainties of life. There is no lyric without the suspense of sorrow and the sigh of fear. No watchful love hovers over the invulnerable. No crown of merit rests suspended over those who do not fight. Take this quality of freedom away from man and there would be no more reason to honor the fortitude of martyrs and soldiers than to honor the flames or the bullets which send them to their death. God will to make a moral universe of praise and blame. But this could be done only by making men captains and masters of their own fate and destiny. And there is one word which sums up God's plan in making this world. And that is the word love. God made each heart capable of love. But love implies a choice. Love is not only an affirmation, it is also a negation. If I choose this, I necessarily reject that. A heart that loves must be a heart to give or to keep. Because therefore God willed to make love of him possible in this world, he had to make us free. But if he made us free to love, he had to make it possible also for us to be free to hate. The universe thus became populated with free wills, little gods, each armed with the reflection of God's freedom. And God pledged himself, after giving us that freedom, never to destroy it, Regardless of how many petulant souls would shriek against him, why does God not stop this war? God could challenge us, overrule us, permit us to be visited by the consequences of our misdeeds, but he would never destroy that great gift of freedom. Man could, if he so wanted, 
Go on defying God for time and for eternity. Subvert his moral law. Blast the cosmos and even break his heart. And still, God would not take away freedom. In this sense, the decree of creation to make man free was also the decree of Calvary. For a free man that could break God's commandments could also crucify him. And not even then would he take away freedom. But in his goodness, he would make man's misuse of freedom, the felix culpa, the occasion of offering himself as a holy cost of love, not to force men back to him, for his hands and feet were nailed, but to entice them back by a revelation of love greater than that which no man hath, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now that brings us to this question. Could God stop this war? Most certainly God could. But if God were ever to be untrue to himself or to us, what would God have to do? He would have to destroy our freedom. That would be the divine cost of stopping this war. We say we are fighting for freedom. Then why do we ask God to destroy freedom? And that is precisely what we ask when we say, why does God not stop this war? We say we are fighting to destroy dictators. Then why do we ask God to become a dictator? We say the dictators are wicked because they would destroy the last vestige of freedom on earth. Then why do we ask for a dictator in heaven? Shall we one moment rage against earthly dictators because they would trample liberty underfoot and then in the next moment shriek for a dictator in heaven who would do the same thing? Certainly if we had to choose, it would be far better to live under earthly dictators for a few years than to have a dictator in heaven who by one blast of omnipotent power could take away that quality in us that makes us the paragons of creation. Fortunately, however, we have no choice in the matter. God will not destroy freedom. He will not be a dictator. And that is why God will not stop this war. Where then should the blame for war be placed? On God's gift of freedom or on our abuse of freedom? Have we not been too proud to admit that we might be sinful? When the world goes wrong, we blame it on systems, tyrannies, governments, unsound economics and bad lands 
but never on our own will. The real evil in the human situation lies in man's unwillingness to recognize his dependence, his finiteness, his creaturehood, or the possibility that there exists something greater than himself. Sin is the abuse of freedom. And that is why the modern man who denied sin found himself in a world of dictatorship. Even the idea of hell is bound up with freedom. Because hell means responsibility. Deny hell, and you deny responsibility. Deny responsibility, and you deny freedom. We began this broadcast by asking, why does God asking, why does God not stop the war? Now the question is turning around. Why do we not stop warring against God? This war is not of God's arbitrary making. It is the effect of our own abuse of God's gift of freedom. We must therefore not expect God to suspend the operation of his laws to protect us from their consequences. God will not suspend the law of gravitation to protect the life of a man who throws himself off the top of the Empire State Building. Neither will God suspend the operation of his moral law to immunize man from a war that is born of the abuse of freedom and of the dechristianization of individual and social life. Why should we always think of the dictators as the creators of the world's woe? They are not its creators. They are rather the creatures. Dictators are like boils, superficial manifestations of an inner rottenness. They would never have come to the surface if there had not been the proper conditions in the world from which they came. It would therefore be a very fatal mistake to think that if we could get rid of the dictators, this world of ours would be lovely and rosy. And the last... We assumed that if we could get rid of the Kaiser, the world... In the last world war, we made that... live in peace and prosperity. Kaiser. But we have another world war in 21 years. We removed the boil, but we kept the infected bad blood. We rid ourselves of the symbol of the world's wrong, but we did nothing to correct the wrong. And what assurance have we now that if we defeat these wicked dictators, the world will pursue justice and righteousness? Unless we cut down the evil tree that begets this evil fruit, we shall go on having more wars. To change the figure, it will do us no good 
to treat the world for a fox bite if like the Spartan youth we are going to continue to carry a fox in our blouse. This war, did we know it, is really only an episode in the working out of a great truth. It is not the great truth that is an episode in this war. And that truth is that this war is not a sign that men are with God. It is a sign that men have been against him. What I'm trying to say is that God did not start this war, and God will not stop it apart from our free cooperation with his law, which is the perfection of our freedom. And when the world is crashing down in our heads, it's really silly and stupid to say that the major frustrations of life are economic or political. Or that if we had another system of economics or another kind of government, all would be well. It is not the systems of the world that have gone crazy, but our hearts. Economics and politics upset the world because evil and selfishness and godlessness first upset the hearts of economists and politicians. And to assure ourselves that the major ills of our time are not economic, we need but inquire who are the disillusioned people of the modern world. They are not the poor. They are not the economically dispossessed. Rather... They are they who possess, who have power, who are selfish, satiated, and who need blaring orchestras without melodies to drown their self-consciousness. There is a thousand times more disenchantment among the intelligentsia than among the poor. Something else is wrong then besides economics. Our souls have lost God. Now does the appeal for a daily holy hour begin to make sense? You know that in each broadcast, I appeal to Jews and Protestants according to the light of their conscience to spend an unbroken hour a day in prayer and meditation for our country and for the peace of the world. I ask Catholics to do more than this because we Catholics believe that our divine Lord is really and truly present on our altars under the species of bread. And to all Jews and Protestants and Catholics who desire a holy hour booklet to assist in this national act of regeneration, we will gladly send one free. But the reason of the holy hour is to make us conscious that sin is the source of the world's confusion. That there must not only be an army which will defend us against external enemies, 
but also an army to overcome evil internally by reparation and by the rededication of our lives to God and to his divine son. We should enter into this national act of reparation and prayer humbly as our Lord entered into the Garden of Gethsemane. Innocent though he was, he entered that garden not as one subject to human brutality, not as rebellious against the injustice of the world. Rather did he see in it an occasion to satisfy divine justice by taking upon himself the sins of the world and thus fulfilling his Father's will. And so should we enter into this war, not regarding ourselves as innocent victims of other sins, for we are all sinners, but as transgressors, assuming part of the blame for the sins of the world. If there's anyone who thinks he is good, let him realize that he lives in an evil world, and therefore he must redeem it. If, however, we feel ourselves as guilty because we abuse God's freedom, then we have need of making atonement for ourselves. In either case, we are under God's purposes, humbly submitting ourselves to his will either to repair the broken fences of our neighbors or else to replant our own wrecked vineyards. Like unto the master in the garden, we will not say we are under a violence imposed by men, but under the sweet compulsion of furthering the cause of God. And in our hearts we will feel less that we are suffering from man's injustice than from a free cooperation with God's justice for the redemption of the world. For when evil men came with swords and clubs to apprehend our Lord in the garden, he turned and said to them, This is your hour. And the power of darkness your hour and all that you can do with it is to extinguish the light your hour and all you can do with it is to turn the world into stygian blackness your hour with the seeming power of authority but which in reality is only the power of darkness, the power to do evil. And we are living in such an era of the world's history now. And hour of darkness, where evil has its way. And how shall this darkness be ended? Not by the sword alone. Even though justice sometimes must be armed. 
Evil can be overcome only by matching an hour of darkness with an hour of watching. And that is why our Lord in the garden, when he turned to Judas and his followers and said, This is your hour of darkness, said to his apostles, Can you not watch with me one hour? He suggested that the holy hour of watching is the divine remedy for the hour of darkness. Shall we foolishly believe that there is any other escape? Satan has his hour, but God has his day. And that day can be ushered in only by watching through the night. Will you watch one hour with him? God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, my dear friends. I hope you enjoyed that reflection titled The Divine Cost of Stopping This War. And uh, we are called to pray for peace. And so let us pray for peace in these war-torn countries. And let us do our part to create a lasting peace. Uh, My dear friends, we will now have Fulton Sheen give us this second reflection uh, during our broadcast today. And it is titled, Wasting Your Life. Please enjoy. This little boy came home from Sunday school or catechism class, and his father said to him, What did you learn today? Oh, he said, I learned how Moses defeated the Egyptians. How did he do it? Well, the Egyptians were chasing the Israelites, and Moses called the airfield. And the airfield flew in some engineers, and they built some pontoon bridges over the sea. And the Jews crossed over the pontoon bridges. Then another fleet of planes came, and they bombed the pontoon bridges as the Israelites, I mean, the Egyptians were on them, and they were all killed. Father said, is that what they told you? No, he said, it isn't. But if I told you what they really said, you wouldn't believe it. And for those that are 39, I must tell them a story, too. I was once talking on prosperity and adversity, and I used the example of flowers. I said some flowers prosper only in sunshine, while others seem to thrive only in the shade, like fuchsias. And afterwards, some woman came to me and she said, that was a wonderful sermon. First time in my life I ever knew what was wrong with my fuchsias. <laughs> now I'm going to talk to you today about working harder, studying harder, living harder, being more wasteful of energy, being more thoughtful of others. 
And I'm going to begin by telling you that I was once a victim of a roast. You probably have seen some roasts on television in which someone is made almost the sacrificial lamb and everyone berates him. Well, I was roasted by the Friars Club. And these actors put on a, a drama on the stage. And in this drama, I had just gone to the Diocese of Rochester. And the vicar general was in the room, my secretary, and several priests who had responsible posts in the diocese. And the Holy Father walks in. And he looked exactly like the Holy Father, the one who was playing that part. And he went over and he talked to the vicar general, whispered to the chancellor, whispered to the other priests, never spoke to me once. And then he left, and I said to them, I said, what did he say? He says, work a hard. <laughs> well, that's what I'm going to tell you, to work a hard. Because really most of us live below the energy, the level of our energy. And in order to be happy, we have to do more. Now, we can do more, spiritually and every other way, than we are doing, as is proven by hypnotism. There were some men hypnotized and told that their strength was greater than it was before. And do you know that they lifted weights 40% more than they'd ever lifted before they were hypnotized? They just got a new idea in their minds. And then another group of men were hypnotized and, and told that they, or no, the same group. And they were told that they were not as strong as they usually are. And the weights they lifted were 40 pounds less, 40% less. So you see how important it is to have in the mind an idea to do all that you can to work to the limit of your, your ability. Our world is really suffering from indifference. Indifference is apathy, not caring. I wonder maybe if our Lord does not suffer more from our indifference than he did from the crucifixion. There was a poet of World War I by the name of Studdard Kennedy who gave us a poem in which he compared our Lord coming to Calvary and coming to the modern city of Birmingham in England. And this is what he wrote. And when Jesus came to Golgotha, they nailed him on a tree. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Birmingham, they only passed him by. They would not hurt a hair of him. They only let him die. For men had grown more tender. They would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. And so it rained. 
the winter rain that drenched him through and through. And when all the crowds had left the street, then Jesus crouched against a wall and sighed for Calvary. In other words, he found the cruelty of Calvary more acceptable than our indifference. I'm going to plead with you, therefore, not to be bored in life. The reason we're bored is because we don't love anything. When you girls get older, you're engaged, the man that you're engaged to will do anything for you. Why? Because he loves you. There was a Chicago florist that advertised, does your husband still send you flowers? And they had to stop. The husband protested. <laughs> well, there was a reason for not sending flowers after they were married. That's very obvious. But when you're in love, you'll do anything. And you'll find that the young man will do anything for you because he loves. And so will you. You'll wear the kind of clothes he wants. If he likes pink, you'll wear pink. And you won't find it a bit boring. But in order to drive home this lesson, I'm going to take stories out of the Bible. And the first story is to induce you to learn to waste yourself, give yourself to others. We go back to King David. He lived a thousand years before Christ. And King David was in a battle against the Philistines, always the enemies of the Jews, the Philistines. And the battlefront took him to his own home village of Bethlehem. Now, when we get older, we sometimes have yearnings for taste and visions and experiences when we were young. And so when David saw the town of Bethlehem, he said to the soldiers, Oh, he said, if I could only taste again the waters from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. And the soldiers said, All right, we will get you the water. We will drive through the lines. And they came back with water. And David held up the vessel of water and poured it out onto the ground. He said, I am not worthy to drink the water that was purchased at such a sacrifice. He wasted it. Wasted it in the sense that if he drank it, he would not now be remembered. And I would not be telling you that story. When we save certain things for ourselves, we spoil them. When we, for example, save our flesh, use it only for our own pleasure, then it becomes lust. We save money. It becomes avarice. We save knowledge not use it to train others, it turns into pride. 
And so David poured out the water as a lesson that sometimes we have to waste the things of life in order to be remembered. Now another story. With the same moral. And here we come to the time of our blessed Lord. He was invited into the house of Simon, the Pharisee. The Pharisees were very self-righteous people. And while he was at dinner with the apostles, a woman comes in the door. Now you must remember that in those days it was very easy to come into a banquet room. Anyone could walk into an adjoining house, stand along the wall, you would not eat, but you could listen to the conversation. It was therefore not very unusual that a woman should come in to overhear the conversation. But she brought a blush to Simon's cheek. He would not have minded it if anyone else had been there. But the Lord, what would he think of it? The woman was a sinner. And Simon kept saying within himself, if he only knew what kind of a woman she is. I wonder how he knew. <laughs> and the woman comes closely to the feet of our Lord. My young people, you must remember that in those days, people did not sit at table. They leaned at table, as if we leaned here almost on the floor. And you rested your head on your left hand, and then you ate with your right hand from table. That's a custom that sometimes I wish would come back. <laughs> so the woman comes to the feet of our Lord, and she has some perfume about her neck. In those days, precious perfume was generally carried around the neck. And she stands above the feet of our Lord and lets fall upon those sandaled harbingers of peace a few tears, like the first warm drops of a summer rain. And then she was ashamed that she had wet his feet with tears, and she wiped them away with her hair. In those days, all women of shame had the hair down. And so it was easy for her, with her long hair down at the side, to wipe the feet of our blessed Lord. Then she took from about her neck this small vessel of perfume. It was a custom, too, among the Jews when they went to a funeral to break this perfume bottle over the corpse and then even to drop the broken bottle into the coffin. Now, as she stands above our Lord's feet, she does not do what you and I would do. You and I would pour it out gently, drop by drop, 
as if to indicate by the slowness of our giving the generosity of our gift. Not those who really love. She just broke the vessel, gave everything. And the house was filled with perfume, says the gospel. So remember, my dear people, this was no smell number five. <laughs> and Judas was there. Judas knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. And he said, why wasn't this saved and given to the poor? But our blessed Lord spoke in favor of the woman. He said, this woman has done this for my burial. Because this incident took place ten days before our Lord was crucified. And the gospel writers have kept this story in the in the gospel, yes, in order that we might again learn to waste, give, break, surrender. As our Lord put it in another occasion, he says, walk the second mile. What did he mean by that? Walk the second mile. Well, because very often in those days was mail, when mail was delivered. Suppose they did it here. When mail was delivered, the postman would say, I listen, I've got a heavy load today. Here, you take half these letters. And he had the authority to make you walk the extra mile to deliver mail. And that's what our Lord meant. If anyone, if the postman forces you to walk one mile, walk another. And imagine he also said, if anyone takes your coat, give him your cloak too. Unlimited giving. We would put this in the language of being generous. That bell rings very often, doesn't it? I have a dim feeling that I'm warned up here. <laughs> so when anyone asks you to do things, be prepared to do more. Why, for example, do we get tired? Well, we think we are, we are tired because we have a certain limit of energy. Like we have certain amount of money in the bank. and. As that money is spent, or as that energy is used, then we have no more, we're exhausted. No, that's not it always. Energy is renewed if we love. As sanctity and holiness declines, energy declines. Can you imagine, for example, Mother Teresa ever being tired? Here this woman who weighs about 90 pounds, who has dragged 25,000 bodies off the streets of Calcutta and converted 15,000 of them. She never seems to be tired because she gets new strength because she's broken the vessel, poured out her life as David poured out the water. I hope therefore that I can impress you not to be selfish. but always to please neighbor, even when they seemingly demand too much. We might even sometimes do the foolish things. And this is the last story that I will tell you about doing foolish things. And you might learn from this, 
that if your faith is very strong, you can do wonders. The scene I'm to describe was on the Lake of Galilee. Our blessed Lord had just multiplied the loaves and the fishes, and the people were excited about it, and they thought, oh, here's a great political king. He can feed the hungry. And they tried to make him a king. And our blessed Lord fled into the mountains alone. Well, his disciples were caught up in this enthusiasm. They liked it. And our Lord did not want them to be burnt with the idea that his kingdom was political. So he said, get into the boat. Go over to the other side of the lake. Get away from these people. This is not the nature of my kingdom. So here's our Lord on a mountaintop. The apostles rowing past midnight in the lake. A storm comes up. They are frightened. Our Lord is praying for them and watching them during the storm. We sometimes think in our trials and difficulties, economic, physical, moral, that the Lord has no concern. That's what they thought, too. But he was watching for the opportune moment. And as the apostles were about to despair, our Lord is seen walking on the water toward them. And they were frightened. They said, it's a ghost. And our Lord said, be not afraid. It is I. Whenever I use that verse, I'm always reminded of a story that was told of Pope Leo XIII. Someone asked to paint his portrait, and it was not very well done. But it was brought to Pope Leo, and he had to sign it. But he signed it in Latin. Noli timere ego sum. Do not fear, it is I. <laughs> Our Lord, therefore, is telling his apostles, now, do not fear, it is I. Here we come to a great act of faith. Peter loves our Lord. And I'm telling you that if you love, you will go on doing things, not stop. And Peter loved our Lord. He wanted to be with him. He couldn't wait until he came to the boat. And he said, bid me come on the waters to you. Imagine that. Peter loved our Lord so much that he thought, well, I can walk on water. Now, can you imagine what must have happened in that boat at the moment that Peter lifts his foot about to step into the water? What do you think happened? His brother Andrew must have said, Peter, listen, you're always an idiot. Thomas must have said, what are you trying to do, join a circus? Judas said, how much money are you getting for this? And on and on they ridiculed, get back, you idiot, get back. But he walked. He walked on the waters. And why did he walk? Was it foolish? 
No, our Lord had said, come. Come. Believe the impossible and you can do the incredible. Or believe the incredible and you can do the impossible. Believe the things that are almost impossible. And if you got faith, they will come true. Our Lord has said, come, and Peter walked on the water. But then he began to sink. Why did he sink? Because Peter knew how to swim. Someday when you learn the gospel better, I will ask you the question, how do you know Peter could swim? As I might ask you the question, who could run faster in a race, Peter or John? Did you know that's in the gospel? When you get it back to school and you're studying scripture, I hope, I hope, I hope, in your catechism, find out who can run faster, Peter or John. I'm not going to tell you, but the answer is in the Bible. And so here, our Lord has said to Peter, come and he walked, but now he sinks. Peter could swim because we know that on the Sunday after Easter, Peter swam 400 yards. That's in the gospel too. Why did he sink if he could swim? The gospel tells us the reason. He took his eyes off the Lord. He began to take account of the winds. He said, oh, nature's against me. Or in our language today, in our sociological world, Peter began to take account of sociological surveys. And he sank. He took his eyes off the Lord. And so the Lord then took hold of his hand and said, Oh, man of little faith, why don't you believe? And then Peter was taken into the boat and our Lord took them to shore. So if you have faith, the impossible things can be done. I'll tell you a story about football that was told me by Coach Paterno of Penn State. Those of you who don't like football, close your ears and God have mercy on you. <laughs> coach Paterno is the coach of Penn State. And a few years ago, his team was playing the University of Kansas. Now, Coach Paterno has an old mother... An Italian mother full of faith knows absolutely nothing about football. But she has two sons who coach football. One coaching at Penn State and the other coaching the Merchant Marine in Connecticut. The score of the football game, 50 seconds before the end of the game, was Kansas 14, Penn State 7. The other son who coached in Connecticut was with the mother and he said to his mother, Mom, it's all finished. Joe is lost. 
she said, no. I'll go in the bathroom and pray. I don't know why she went into the bathroom to pray, but at any rate, that's the story. She went into the bathroom. She said, I'll go in the bathroom and pray. Now this, now picture this good, good old lady going into the bathroom to pray to the good Lord. What happens now in the remaining seconds? Penn State threw a touchdown and the score, boys, what was the score now with the touchdown? 14 to what? No. 13, right. 14 to 13. To make it 14, what do they have to do? Pick a field goal. Would there be any other way of making extra points? Forward? Yes, or run through the line. Yes, there will be another way. Well, they decided not to kick the field goal because that would mean a tie, 14 to 14. So they tried a forward to get behind the goal line, and that would count two points and make the score 15 to 14. They tried it, and they missed. But Kansas was offside, so they had to try it over again. And the next time they made it, well, her son screamed, and he shouted out, Mom, they've won! And she came out, and she said, I told you, I told you. So you see, you believe, believe the incredible, and you can do the impossible. And it would seem as if Coach Joe Paterno's wisdom had won the game, but actually it was the mother. <laughs> now my time is up. Oh, yes. Listen, my good, my good people, it's always better for you to say, I wished he had talked longer, than to have you say he had three good chances to quit. I hope now that you'll carry away from this talk two lessons. First of all, I hope the women will become interested in football. That'll help, won't it? <laughs> and secondly, be generous with yourself. Just give, give, give. And as we give, we get. This is the gospel lesson. As we pour out ourselves, God gives us strength. Now, for example, we know... Let me tell you, when I came over here, I was dead tired. I didn't want to talk. I didn't feel like it. So I said to the good Lord, I'm tired now, and I'm going to talk on using strength. Spend yourself. Give me strength. Do I look tired? No. <laughs> Thank you. Now, everybody be generous, generous with self. I know that when I go now that Monsignor is going to talk about being generous in other ways. <laughs> but I mean being generous with yourself, your energy, your kindness to others, your charity, your helpfulness, because then you will be real Christians. This friend of mine that I told you who was in the prison for 14 years. When he got out of prison in Romania, he was walking along the street and found a boy and he said, do you believe 
in Christ? And the boy said, no. Why don't you? The little boy says, you think Christ is God, don't you? Well, now, if Christ is God, if Jesus is God, he can do what God does. God made flowers. Flowers made other flowers. God made elephants. Elephants made other elephants. And nobody's ever given me anything. And if Jesus is God, then he ought to be able to make other Jesuses. But I've never found another Jesus. My father's an alcoholic. My mother takes in Washington to live. Nobody's ever given me a toy or a suit of clothes. Therefore, I don't believe that Jesus is God because he never made any other Jesus. And Dr. Wormbrand said, but isn't your pastor? Well, no, he said he's not. He's not. When this pastor was told, I, he said, oh, that boy is silly. He wasn't silly. He was right. So if Jesus is God, he ought to be able to make other Jesuses. That's what you are. Other Jesuses. And you ought to so manifest him in your lives that as you move among others, they will say of you as the maidservant said of Peter, Thou hast been with Christ. Thank you, and God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed these two reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. And I invite you to visit our website at bishopsheentoday.com. And there you'll find hundreds of videos and audio recordings of the great Archbishop. And so that website, again, is bishopsheentoday.com. My friends, until next time, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the good Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.